Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Good morning. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the Word of God? Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love them. Love him, the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Thank you. You may be seated. We're moving into a series here um, over these next four weeks where we're going to be processing certain myths that sometimes uh, are bought into whether we understand it or not, and they mislead or misguide us into different areas. Um, John Lennon's song that you just heard, Imagine, is one of the most popular songs that's ever been written, and probably for a couple of factors. One, one reason would be it's a beautiful song. And it just captures you in the melody and in, in the notes. But even beyond that, it's been argued John Lennon was a visionary, and I would give him that. He had a certain vision in mind, a certain ideal, that probably each and every person at least understands and has some glimpse of. You know, imagine that we had a place where there would be perfect peace. Imagine that we could have a place where there would be a brotherhood of people, brotherhood of men. Imagine a place where, uh, I'm not sure I get the no country piece, because in order to publish a song so it can be distributed, you kind of got to have a country. So John benefited from this a little bit. So I'm not sure I get that one, but imagine no possessions, at least in the sense of sharing our possessions. There's an ideal here that he taps into. And many people, when they hear that, it resonates with them. And I'm not here to disparage John or, or even what he was shooting for. I have to give him the benefit of the doubt that he was shooting for an ideal that we at least in some ways agree with. The issue comes in with and how we get there. John lays out a path here that may not lead us to a dream for a dreamer, but instead might lead us to a nightmare. And it's important for us to understand what are the things that guide us? What are the myths that we might buy into that guide us? Now, when I use that word myth, what do I mean? There are different ways that you can understand the word myth. One of the ways is probably the way we tend to think of it. Kind of a traditional story, more ancient type of story with legendary elements to it. Maybe not altogether true. It might bring certain things to mind that we'll probably get to at some point in this series. You might even question things about Jesus and whether the idea of myth applies there. We'll get to that. But for the moment, table that idea. Because what we're looking at today and, and a little bit over these next couple weeks, is the other idea of a myth. A myth, in a second sense, more contemporary, is simply this. A widely held but false belief or idea. That's it. Just a widely held but maybe false belief or idea. Let me give you some examples of this in just modern times. Just flippant ones. You need to drink eight glasses of water a day. You ever hear this one? 
Man, my wife's not going to like this one. She tells me this all the time. I need to get my water. And apparently, the, the, the reality is that while it might be good advice for maybe for people like in really dry climates, you know, if you live in Arizona or something like that, um, we don't necessarily need to follow this as a rule. The basic rule is if you're thirsty, drink. On that note, give me a second. <sighs> No, that wasn't uh, just for message purposes. I got dry mouth today. Hydrogen peroxide helps wounds heal. Truth is, apparently it doesn't at all. Now, I'm guilty of this one. I put it on wounds all the time. My poor kids. I'm sorry, kids. I didn't mean anything by this. Apparently, the bubbling you see on the skin is the hydrogen peroxide attacking the skin. It causes minor, but it causes some cellular damage and actually can extend the healing process. So next time, just go straight to the antibiotic, okay? Cracking knuckles leads to arthritis. No, it doesn't. It's not something I do all the time. Maybe you shouldn't either, because even though it doesn't lead to arthritis, it is mildly annoying, okay? So just don't do it all the time. The five-second rule, belief that it takes five seconds for bacteria on the floor to hop on. <laughs> nope. Takes a second if that, okay? So that's why you haven't been feeling well lately. Irregardless is not a word. It actually is a word. I didn't think so. I, for years, I've told people the word is regardless, not ir- Apparently, look it up in the dictionary, irregardless of the word. So irregardless of what you think, it's an actual word. These are kind of just basic ideas that kind of ingrain themselves into our thinking, right? And they're, these are fairly benign, necessarily nothing real bad that's going to come out of, out of these. But we buy into them, and then it leads our behavior, leads us down a path. Here's another one. This is a phrase that's been used at times, and I believe with growing intensity today, though we may not use these exact words. The phrase is, it's all relative. It's all relative. Everything in life is just relative to what you think, what you believe, what you feel, This idea, in a classic sense, is is known as the idea of relativism. What do we mean by that? It's the idea that points of view or claims to truth or claims to morality or things like this have no validity within themselves. Instead, they're only relative to the person who perceives or wants to believe that. So they're just relative to each person. There's no absoluteness to a claim of truth or a claim of morals or anything like that. It's called relativism. And it's a pretty popular belief because in some cases, it seems to resonate. I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, Tastes are sometimes considered relative, right? Back here on a table, I've got a few things here. First thing, chocolate. I'm just curious, how many people like chocolate? Show of hands. Okay, how many people don't like chocolate? I'm going to pray for you. Okay. Tastes are relative. Not everybody in the room, believe it or not, likes chocolate. Maybe some people can't even eat it. Sweet peas or peas. How many people like peas? You know, you're the same people that didn't like chocolate. Uh, No. How many people like peas? Okay. All right. How many people don't? I'm sorry. Show of hands. Yeah. Okay. So divided across the room. It's relative. Okay. Classic age-old battle. Coffee and tea. How many people prefer coffee? Yep, okay, you're, you're in good with God. How many people uh, prefer tea? Okay, good. Common thing, right? Some people like one, some people like the other. Tastes are, are relative. And so maybe, maybe everything's relative, right? I mean, if, if what we like to eat changes from person to person, then maybe what we believe or what we should do should change from person to person. What about beliefs about God or beliefs about what's moral, what's right or wrong, good or evil? 
Maybe, maybe just relative. How widespread is that idea? Because there might be people in this room that think, no, 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 I don't really resonate with that. And I'm not sure how widespread that really is. Well, let me give you a statistic that might alarm you. In 1991, the Barna Research Group found that 66%, that's about two out of three, 66% of American adults didn't believe, did not believe that absolute truths exist. Specifically, they agreed there's no such thing as absolute truth. Two people could define truth in totally conflicting, contradictory ways, and both could still be correct. Even more disturbing was that half of Christians, devoted Christians who follow Jesus, 53%, even ones associated with churches, believed and maintained that same idea, that there are no absolute truths. Isn't that interesting? Okay? Almost, and later on when they did another study, 72% of American adults, it had grown, almost three out of four, affirmed this idea of relativism. It is growing we even invent cultural memes. You hear that word out there, memes, these ideas that we implant? We've created a cultural meme that captures us at least in a sense. You ever hear the phrase, haters gonna hate? Haters gotta hate? Have you heard that phrase? Now, sometimes that's used to mean people who are just hateful for no reason. But I have seen many blogs and discussions online where that is used to push off a view anytime something is claimed to be an absolute truth that has authority in my life. Somebody pushes that off with the idea, haters gotta hate. Apparently, there's a certain position that goes with this of the body, you know, the, to, to kind of flippantly make the statement that captures online. Here's one of them. Uh, we got Leonardo DiCaprio uh, modeling it for us. Okay, there you go. Haters going to hate. And I had to throw one in for Randy, too. Uh, here's another one. We know, <laughs> we know his tremendous love for cats, so there you go. This apparently is the snarky position of haters that are going to hate. And that has been used, that phrase, to just push something off to say, if you claim that there's a certain thing that has authority in my life, a certain morality, a certain truth, you're just a hater. And we push this off because it's not relative to me. Now, the Bible, in contrast, totally disagrees with this idea. 235 times in the Scripture, the idea of truth is mentioned. And never one time is it stated that it's relative to an individual person's perception. Never once. So what's going on here? In fact, Jesus himself, when he described himself and what he embodied being God in the flesh, described himself this way. I am the way, he said. Not one way. I am the truth, not your truth. The truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am an exclusive, absolute embodiment of truth. And so which view is right here? This idea of kind of jettisoning God or truth or absolutes, or this idea that there are absolutes. Well, let's for the moment put the God question slightly aside and just kind of look at this from the standpoint of life. I believe that we can look at a number of ways of why relativism just doesn't really add up. I mean, let me get cute for a minute. Relativism, again, is the idea, what? That all claims of truth are relative to each person's taste. There is no claim that is an absolute truth. So is that true? Absolutely. Think about it for a minute. No absolute truth, is that true? Absolutely it is. Okay? Or another way you could say it. Is everything relative? Absolutely they are. All right? I mean, right away you can kind of see there's something wrong. But let's, let's put the cute logic games aside. It almost seems instinctual that having no absolute point of reference whatsoever on anything in life, not just mere food taste, but the more important weighty matters of life, just leads to tremendous confusion. 
In fact, it reminds me of a story of, of two Australian guys, these two Aussies. They're kind of good time loving guys, and they decide to try out some of the pubs in London. So they show up, um, they get off the boat, and they, they go into the first pub they see, and they, they drink themselves into the early hours of the morning. And then they stagger out of the pub. And as they're stepping out, kind of swaggering into this dense London fog that's now shrouding everything, they have no idea where they are. And they see a man walking towards the pub. And, and unknown to them, because they're just in a drunken stupor, uh, he's this highly decorated English naval officer. And one of them just looks at him and just kind of flippantly says, Hey, mate, tell us where we are. And this guy looks back at, at them, just offended at their, their crass behavior, their, their blatant disregard for any politeness due to his rank. And he looks at them with a stern gaze, and he points at his medals. And he says, Do you men know who I am? And the one other Aussie looks at his friend and kind of staggers and says, Boy, we're in trouble now, mate. We have no idea where we are, and he has no idea who he is. Total confusion. Totally lost. That's where this leads if you carry it to its extreme. Let me give you some examples of this. Take the, take the idea of finances, right? Fiscal responsibility, even in your own family. I saw a show recently. It's a Family Ties. You ever remember that, uh, um, that, that sitcom? I saw an episode where the dad shows three graphs of the family's monthly income versus expenses to his family. He's trying to get costs in line. You know, they're getting out of control, according to him. And he shows these graphs, and then the mom, Elise, says, well, according to the graph, uh, we're 200 behind on one graph in each month. But according to the other graph, the pie graph, we break even each month. According to your bar graph, we're ahead $300 each month. Stephen, the dad, says, what's your point, Elise? Elise says, well, which one's right? And Mallory, the daughter, speaks up and says, wait a minute, Mom. It might be important to consider here that there is no right or wrong. I think that it's up to each individual to decide what's right. And personally, I think we're ahead, so I'm going shopping. <laughs> Would that work? I mean, we all know that the checkbook balance is not relative. This family is going to go broke because there are some absolutes in life. What about in the moral realm? You know, have you been hearing lately these stories about these hackers that are breaking? One of them stole, a group of them stole a Disney film, and they're holding it ransom, basically the new Disney Pirates film. And if they don't release a certain amount of money to these hackers, they're going to distribute it freely to the world before the release date. That was the story. Okay? Hackers are a big thing in this world. I was reading an actually very interesting book about a cat and mouse game of this astronomer working at the University of Berkeley, UC Berkeley, who comes across this little accounting error in their systems wondering what's going on. And this leads down this giant cat and mouse chase for the span of a year where he traces a hacker that was logging into their system and using some of their time and, and, and it was costing them some money, leaking, uh, logging in illegally and getting from there into the military networks and the Air Force computers and the NSA and all of these things. It's a true story. It actually happened in the 80s. And they chased this guy down after a year and finally found out he had been logging in from Germany through the transatlantic lines into what was called the Timnet at the time, into University of Berkeley, into the military network, the Milnet, and off into all of these systems, and stealing top-secret systems and costing money. And, and basically, they finally got the arrest warrants in place and arrested this guy. And the question you have to ask is, what happens when they finally bring this guy to, to court in Germany, and he stands up in front of the judge and says, wait a minute, according to your view, I'm guilty. According to my view, I'm innocent. What would we do? If relativism is true, they would have to let him go. Sorry, we didn't mean to waste your time, because that's your truth, and your truth is that you're innocent. You did nothing wrong. Think about it. What about even worse situations? What about, imagine a courtroom 
where the judge is looking at, at the defendant and says, you were seen, witnessed, you were witnessed shooting the person in cold blood. And so I hereby sentence you to life in prison. And the defendant says, but judge, I don't consider that wrong. That's not my truth. And the judge says, well, hey, then in that case, you're not wrong. You're free to go. Makes no sense. It can't make sense in the realm that we're talking about of morals and truth. And yet, this idea has become very popular. And it's become popular because of people whose names you've probably never heard. But if you dig around, you'll find out there have been certain thinkers, certain philosophers, guys like this by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. He was known as an existentialist. He has influenced a lot of thinking that's gone cross-cultural, within the church, without the church. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. He has influenced a lot of thinking out there. He had the basic belief, along with another group of people, they were called existentialists. They had this belief. It was sort of like this. When you look at an iPhone, you might assume, or a smartphone like this, that it was designed. There was a designer, a person, somebody behind it, who created it according to a certain design, gave it a certain purpose of how to behave, and then the phone came along. The design came first in the mind of the designer, and then came the thing, right? Existentialists didn't believe that. They believed the thing is just there. So in other words... In the case of human beings, there is no designer and there is no design he's put there of how to behave, act, or think. You're just there. You just exist. And so therefore, like Sartre would say, you should just act. Don't think. Don't question how you should behave. Just act. Live for today, in other words. Sound like familiar words? Imagine all the people just living for today with no other sense of accountability or connection outside of themselves, that was the viewpoint. And so he even went on to say, not only can everyone do what they want, but they will be incapable from such a point of view as this of condemning the point of view or action of anyone else. We can't judge anyone else's actions or point of view. What's the impact of this kind of thinking? Does it result in a dream and a fantasy to jettison the ideas of God or absolute standards or or just, just believe for today? Does it work? The problem with this is that you don't end up with a moral framework of how you should behave and what you should or shouldn't do, whether you should or shouldn't murder people or steal top secrets and destroy people's lives or just blow money never worrying about if your checkbook's going to go in the red. That, no framework results for that. In fact, you end up with no framework. Anything goes. Nothing is wrong. There's no basis to say any view is more right or less right than another. I want to play a video clip for you. It's about two minutes. I want you to see an individual who's reasoning this out in their own mind as they take the viewpoint, like Jean-Paul Sartre and others, that there is no absoluteness in right or wrong or things of this nature. Watch the mental gymnastics as this person tries to reason it out. Some, some stark terms are going to be used by the interviewer because he's trying to get this person to think about these things. And watch where they come to at the end of this video when they finally no longer can keep up with that internal conflict inside. Just check out this video. My name's Chad. So, Ben, you don't believe in right and wrong? Nope. And why is that? It's purely subjective. I mean, it's never really straight up and down, if that makes any sense. That's kind of the best way I could explain it. So when you think of something like torturing babies for the fun of it, you can't say that's black and white wrong? You, you say I that it's, it's, it's open? I say it's cruel. But I mean, like, torturing babies for the fun of it. 
you should be stopped. I don't believe in right or wrong, but I would stop you if I saw you doing it. When you use a word like should or ought, are you not assuming that there's a certain way that things should or ought to be? Hmm. In my own personal ideals, I've, I have an ideal world. But I believe that other people disagree with me about what my ideal world is, and they could be just as right as I am. I think you could be just as right as I am. So you think that each individual person has their own truth value, and it's equivalent to one another. I have my opinion, you have your opinion, and neither one of us has any more truth value than the other? Essentially. So your truth value, your opinion, has no more weight or bearing than a child molester's or a rapist? That their moral opinion is just as valuable not any less valuable than yours. It has just as much weight. Yeah, they're still human beings. Everybody has their, everybody has their right to have their moral opinion. And I, they're going to tape this, and I'm probably going to regret saying this, but I have to, just like I think Hitler's entitled to do what he did, but I still would have fought against him. And just kind of going back on what you're saying, though, that's only your opinion, mm -hmm. and your opinion ultimately has no more value than a child molester's or a rapist. Pretty much. Isn't there something within you that just kind of screams, this is just wrong, but I can't explain it from my worldview? No. Isn't there something within you that just says raping and child molesting isn't only subjectively wrong, it's not just wrong because that's my opinion, but it's absolutely wrong, but with my worldview, I just can't explain that somehow. Is that sort of the conundrum that you're in? Hmm. Something along those lines. Something along those lines, yeah. I didn't play that um, to point that individual out. In fact, this is pretty widespread, but think about the claims there. Hitler was entitled, he's referring, of course, to World War II and the killing of, some people say 6 million, that was just the Jewish people, as far as people can tell, probably upwards of 10 to 12 million people. And I'm going to quote some other people in a moment that followed that same viewpoint. Understand, all of these people had one idea in mind. They shared a philosophy, like I just mentioned to you, that remove God, there is no God, people just act, you're free to act as you please. And the problem, of course, in that view is when you pull God out, there is no more any grounding or anchoring for right and wrong, good and evil. It's just do what you will. And so you see the result as an individual who I believe carries the image of God trying to fight against the feeling inside that he knows these things are not just wrong because he says so or I say so or someone else doesn't say so, so they're free to do it, but they're inherently wrong. They are evil. Raping and torturing children is evil. There is no context in which these things are good. Abuse and things of this nature, there is no context in which these things are good. They do not reflect the way God designed us to behave. But yet when you have bought into an idea that says you are not designed, you are just free to do what you want, live for today, it does not result in a dream, it results in a nightmare. Is this a fringe example that we just saw, this guy? You might think so, it's not. There was an individual who did a study of university students about 10 years ago. And they asked those university students, multiple campuses, multiple universities, the question along the lines of what he just hinted at. This was their question. Was the Holocaust wrong? The Holocaust, where Hitler gassed and killed multiple millions of people because they didn't agree with his ideology. and just felt he could do that because he just acted 
for today. And they asked them that question, was the Holocaust wrong? Do you know that one out of two, 50% of the students roughly said they didn't like it, but they couldn't say what he did was wrong. Where will this lead us as a culture if this isn't checked, if there isn't some voice of reason in the midst of this? In stark contrast, Jesus doesn't see this world as a relative choice of what you feel. He says this regarding that there is an absolute standard and yet that we struggle with it because we have fallen from that absolute standard. Matthew 15, for from the heart of man, he's saying, of human beings come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander, you know, rape and torture and these type of things that were just referenced in the video. This comes out of the heart of man. This is not what you choose to do. These are bad things. They defile you, he says. It's not your choice. Act as you will. They defile you. And before we get all high and mighty on the gentleman we just saw in the video we have to ask ourselves when do we allow those things to slip even if we're a follower of christ when do we reason out you know little black and white or gray areas of morality and justify certain things that we choose to do uh, because you know after all this is a small area a little white lie a little thing like that a little betrayal you know a little hiding of this or that money you know because after all we should have what we want if we're doing these kind of things and we're kind of thumbing our nose at it, then we are acting as a moral relativist, no matter how much we say we follow God. We are acting in this way, and we're doing harm to the world around us. God doesn't allow for this. Psalm 15, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. To God, truth and morality are intertwined. They're sacred, they're inseparable, and they even form a basis in terms of our relationship and intimacy with Him. They're important. They provide a stable basis for our relationship with each other. That book I was telling you about, about the individual chased down that international spy, was very interesting at the end because when he started the whole thing, he kind of had the viewpoint of, hey, just let people live as they want. Even people hacking into computers, whatever, you know, let them have a little fun. And then after he chased this person down for a year and realized the kind of damage that they were doing, this is what he said. One afternoon, a friend of his challenged him, his friend Darren. He said, Cliff, you're just kind of an old fogey. Why do you care so much that people are hacking around in your system? That could have been you and your distant youth. Where's your appreciation for creative anarchy? Remember that word, creative anarchy. Okay? And his reply was this. He said, in all my time playing cop and finally chasing this person down, I finally had an answer for him. And here's what he said. In a small town where people never lock their doors, would we praise the first burglar for showing the townspeople how foolish it was to leave the door open? The first one that just breaks into a house? Would we praise that? After it happened, the town could never go back to open doors. To have an interconnected community, we have to preserve our sense of trust. To do that, we have to take it seriously when people break that trust. Break the trust, and the community vanishes forever. Trust. That's a moral value, and it has to be absolute. It can't be, you choose to be trustworthy, I choose not to be. It's all relative. Communities break down. Relationship to God breaks down. It has far-reaching impact. There was a man by the name of Vishal Mangalwadi. He's kind of like the Francis Schaeffer of India. He's a great thinker. And, and he, he and his wife, Ruth, one day were on a speaking engagement, and they joined their host who took them on the tour of the beautiful countryside of this host's country. And the guy, his name was Jan, at one point says to Vishal, hey, let's go get some milk. And they set off for the, the local dairy. And then this is what Vishal saw. He said, I'd never seen such a place like this. 
not, not in his own country. It had a hundred cows, there were no staff on site, and it seemed amazingly clean and orderly. In my country, we had a small dairy, but our dairy had two workers, and it was filthy and smelly. But what surprised him even more was the immaculate state of the dairy, and that there was no one there to actually milk the cows or to sell milk to them. And then he said what Dr. Jan did next, his host, was shocking. He said he was expecting him to ring the bell for service, but instead he opened the tap, put his jug under it, filled the jug with milk. Then he reached up to a windowsill, took down a bowl full of cash, took out his wallet, put $20 in the bowl, took some change out, put the bowl back, picked up his jug and left. He said, I was stunned, says Vishal. He told him, if you were from my country, you would take the milk and the money. And he said, sometime later, I was talking to a friend of mine from an even more crafty culture, and my friend said this. He said, we're even cleverer than you guys. In my country, we'd have taken the milk, the money, and the cows. We'd have taken it all. And at that moment, Vishal understood why it has been easier to do business in Western countries, maybe not so more, so much anymore, but at the time, than in his native country. And he says, at issue was morality. If a customer you see walked away with the milk and the money, the dairy owner then has to hire a salesperson, don't they? But who pays for the salesperson? You do, the consumer. Follow him here. Now, if the consumers, though, are dishonest, why should the supplier be honest? He would add water to the milk, increase the volume, right? It's everybody's truth. Let's just do what's right for me. Let me just act. The government would have to appoint milk inspectors. And who pays for the milk inspectors? You, the taxpayer. If the consumers and suppliers were dishonest, why would the inspectors be honest? They would extract bribes from the suppliers. If they didn't get the bribes, they'd use one law or another to ensure that the sale is delayed long enough to make the refrigerated milk, non-refrigerated milk curdle. Who would pay for the bribes? Initially the supplier, but eventually you, the consumer. And so the salesperson, the water, the inspectors, and the bribe, they add nothing to the value of the milk, Vishal says. And he ends with this, in paying for them, we simply pay for our sin. There is a cost, a tremendous cost, to pretending morals aren't there. This idea of relativism doesn't lead to peace and brotherhood. In fact, it leads in the exact opposite direction. And I believe the reason is, as we wrap up, is because relativism is rooted in a deeper and more sinister issue I believe, that is many thousands of years old. We've heard from John Lennon. We've heard from John Paul Sartre. Let's hear from another John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 18, he tells us about an exchange between Jesus and Pilate, a man named Pilate, who was a local governor of the day. And as you see in this verse here, Jesus is standing in front of Pilate being judged, and Pilate says to him, Are you a king? And Jesus says, I came here to testify to the truth. He says, Whoever is on the side of the truth. Whoever believes in the truth will hear my voice. And in response to that, Pilate looks right at him and says, what is truth? And just walks out on him. And even though he says there, I don't find any legal basis to condemn Jesus, he ends up condemning him. He condemns the most innocent of people. Why? Because he rejected truth, the absoluteness of truth, and didn't seek it. But more so, he rejected truth standing right in front of him. The embodiment of truth. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That was Jesus before He became flesh. He was there in the beginning. The word beginning in the original language that God gave us is the word arche. Now follow this here, arche. And when 
you take away God, He is the beginning, He is the source, He is the root of who we are. He designed us like that iPhone. He is the, is the standard for how we ought to behave toward one another. And when we cut that off, as Pilate walked out on it, and as Adam and Eve, the very first man and woman did, they cut that source off. When they walked out on God, what they did is they said, we are autonomous, we can do it without Him. We don't need him. We can define our own standards. That was the problem from the beginning. And when you cut off God, the source, the beginning, the word in the Greek is anarche. It's, we get a word from it. The word is anarchy. When you cut God off, you don't end up with a dream. You end up with chaos. You end up with chaos because anyone can do what they will. And something in the human heart doesn't want to do what's right. It wants to violate and do what's wrong. And so we either end up casting off authority, all authority, and that's chaos. You remember the movie, I think it came out a while ago, uh, The Purge? It's that idea, just take, take a day of time and just cast off all authority. Anarchy ensues, chaos ensues, killing, death, murder, destruction. We don't suddenly result in a utopia. We either end up with that or we end up with something worse, tyranny, as somebody takes the place of God. You see, this is what John Lennon was missing in these kind of ideas. It says we don't need God, we don't need religion, we don't need these things. Just cut it off and we're going to end up with a dream world. The problem with that is, is it doesn't understand what John Paul Sartre understood. He quoted a friend of his that said this. It's a very true statement. If God does not exist, everything is permitted. Everything is permitted. Hitler this gentleman said was entitled to do what he wants, even though we might not like it, killed 10 to 12 million people in his pursuit of his own ideal. Stalin, the communist man from Russia, killed 20 million, some estimate. And Mao, the person from China, Mao Zedong, killed its estimated upwards of 38 million people ruthlessly in their pursuit of what? An idea, I'm not making a political claim here, I'm simply saying an idea that gets rid of God. It starts with a place that says there is no God, we will set the standard, and this is the result. Eighty-some million people dead in cold blood. And this is what David Berlinski says. He says, what Hitler did not believe, and what Stalin did not believe, and what Mao did not believe, and the SS and the Gestapo and all of them like them did not believe, was that God was watching what they were doing. None of them believed that. And as far as we can tell, very few of those carrying out the horrors of the 20th century, and some of those are continuing on nowadays, didn't believe very much that God was watching what they're doing either. That is, after all, the meaning of a society where God is rejected as the source of truth and morality. This is where we're going. There's an individual that coined it this way today. His name's Thomas Nagel. And this is what he said. He said, I want atheism, the idea that God isn't there, to be true. I'm I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's not just an atheistic problem. That's a human problem. From the very beginning, we wanted to cut off the source. And when we do, we risk tremendous cost for doing so. If God is dead, Malcolm Muggeridge says, something is going to have to take his place. It will either be megalomania or erotomania. The drive for power, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, we've seen it before, we may see it again. The drive for power or the drive for pleasure. The clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. We've seen 
the drive for power and tyranny when this idea is adopted. We may see it again. Nowadays, we're seeing the drive for extreme pleasure without God. We don't even know where that's going to lead us. If we're going to have any foundation, any justification for a world that maintains real peace, real brotherhood, we do not find it after rejecting God or His truth or His morality for this world. We do that at great cost. He alone can provide a foundation for a dream that men like John Lennon were telling us about, but not in the way that he said. Now I realize, and I want to end with this point, that it's pretty easy to hear all of this and think, you know something? There's a heck of a lot of religious people out there doing a lot of bad things. Just think one word, ISIS. And so how can I stand up here and claim to you with any sense of credibility that God is the answer? Well, the truth is, people can choose a lot of different reasons to bring tyranny and to bring destruction because that's in our human nature. But the answer is not to reject God. The answer may be is in a proper view of who God is. Maybe that will bring the transformation that we seek. Chuck Colson tells a story of how he one day visited Humaita Prison in Brazil. Now, this is a remarkable prison. 20 years ago, at the time that he visited, 20 years prior, it had been a rotting building where prisoners were tortured. But then three men who had faith in Christ, asked if they could go in and help run a few things. They didn't force anybody to believe anything. They just wanted to bring a basic culture, a basic understanding in there. And they made the gospel story of Jesus available. This is what Chuck Colson said 20 years later when he visited it. He said, the prison was incredibly productive and stable. It was the cleanest prison I'd ever seen. The cleaning schedule is established and carried out by the inmates, and this was even more impressive. He said, while the offending rate, reoffending rate in Brazil is 74%, that means three out of every four prisoners in Brazil, when they leave prison, go back. He said, in Humaida, in this prison, it's only 4%. Only 4% of the people that leave the prison ever reoffend and go back. And he goes on to say, one inmate showed me Humaida's secret. The inmate was convicted for murder, but he was my guide through the prison. He walked with all the prison keys hanging from his belt. He asked whether I'd like to see the maximum security cell. So we walked down the hall of steel doors toward the cell. He said it used to be the punishment cell where they tortured prisoners. We still use it for punishment, this prisoner said. We have one inmate in there. He took me to the door and looked through the little peephole. He said, are you sure you want to go in there? You want to see this? Chuck Colson said, I've been in security holes all over the world. I'm up for it. And so the man said, okay, and he unlocked the door. As he swung the door open, I looked in, and this is what I saw. A couple of chairs and a dim light and flowers on a table. When I walked through the door to the right, I saw an image, an image of Jesus hanging on the cross. My guide pointed me to the image of Christ and said, this is the prisoner who's taking the punishment for all of us. A sign on the wall above the image of Jesus said, we are together in Portuguese. And Chuck ends with this. They understood that they're joined with the one who suffered for them, that they might have peace. Only the conflict of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus and an understanding that God is that person can bring about 
all these desires of brotherhood. Brotherhood, the one who said, have love for one another. That's how people will know you're my disciples. Of sharing of possessions, as the early church was told, they shared with one another and helped those that were in need. Imagine no possessions. At least that captures that spirit of it. Not to give away everything we have, but to share with those in need with love and peace. As we're told in the scripture, he was the one who struck down that dividing wall of hostility between us. He has brought us together through his conflict on the cross as he paid for our sin. These are the elements that God has brought together to bring a world that was imagined about. Cut God off and you end up with tyranny. You end up lost. Bring a proper view and an understanding of God in. And the picture comes together. And so the question is, what will we do? If you have never considered that about Jesus, will you allow his idea of truth to come in? The truth, not just your truth. Will you open your heart to that? If you follow him today, will you reestablish and recommit to him in the midst of a world that tells you to cut him off and cast him away and that the answer is in doing that Hebrews 6 for those who choose his path says therefore we who have fled to him for refuge that one on the cross can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us this hope in him is a strong and trustworthy worthy anchor for our souls cut off God you have no anchor put the real God in place and he is an anchor for our souls in the hope of true community and true relationship with him Father as we open our hearts to you over these next few weeks God may you bring us to a place of commitment to your ways to your truth to the morals that you give us God because you designed us you're our creator God, may we carry them as your son did with brokenness and humility and a real sense of grace towards others we may share this with, God. Guide us in this discussion these next weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.